Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, Eric, last week I described the apparent upcoming Roy Jones-Mike Tyson exhibition as being like a skunk at a party. Well... I don't know if it was Roy spraying Mike or Mike spraying Roy, but a couple of days after I made that remark, uh, I actually had a couple skunk incidents at home. Um, there is, I don't know if you've had this experience, but there is nothing quite like enjoying a warm and breezy summer evening, enjoying the fact that it's possible to have the window open uh, and enjoying the weather outside, sitting in the living room with the fresh air coming in, <laughs> only to suddenly have the nostrils be hit by the unmistakable scent of skunk spray. Um, I don't know what it sprayed, but whatever it was, it must have been right underneath the window because it wafted right into the house, which is a particular delight. If anyone's never smelt skunk, woof, it is it is a thing. It is a thing. Still preferable on balance to the black bear break in that I had the other week, I suppose. It's a regular little like mutual of Omaha going on here. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that's an interesting uh, comparison. A little, little bit of a six of one, half a dozen of another kind of thing in between the, no. the bear and the skunk and which one has more lingering effects. Um, but, you know, you you invoked the name of the skunk here and you talked Drew about it. a skunk and a skunk showed up. I guess it's good you didn't refer to Tyson Jones last week as the turd in the punch bowl. Because yeah. um, uh, we don't, we don't, you don't want to experience that in real life. Although, actually, I guess I don't know which is worse. Maybe maybe that's a good would you rather. I, I think maybe it depends on whether anyone drinks the punch. You know, if uh-huh. if a turd in the punch bowl just means you get a little grossed out to see it and then have to waste a big bowl of punch and throw it out, I guess that's not so bad. But um, fortunately, I'm in a much better position because the upcoming showtime schedule is the Sofia Vergara and Halle Berry. <laughs> The <laughs> well, this is going to be a fascinating experiment to <laughs> yes, see how this I might works. Be absent from the podcast for the next several weeks. <laughs> I, if, if you are unable to podcast with me, I will understand. Yeah, there you go. Uh, all right, coming up in this edition of the podcast, we will be looking back on the return of Showtime Championship Boxing in the form of Saturday's triple header from the Mohegan Sun, headlined by Angelo Leo's dominant win over Tremaine Williams and our old friend Stephen Breadman Edwards. We'll be joining us to talk about that and about some upcoming cards. But first, this Sunday saw the fifth and final installment of the Showtime Sports documentary series Outcry about Texas high school football player Greg Kelly, who was accused, convicted, and ultimately exonerated of sexually assaulting a four-year-old boy. Uh, we talked about this a little bit with Stephen Espinosa the other week, and we promised after we previewed the first episode that we would circle back and look at the whole series when it was done, and, and here we are. Eric, when we did talk about it last, we both agreed that on the basis of that opening episode, it looked compelling, um, we, that we were both greatly looking forward to the other episodes, uh, so much so that we have actually both binged them in very short order. Yeah. Uh, I remember that the one caveat I had at the time of that first episode was that I wanted to be sure, you know, this is the filmmakers treated the whole case with sort of like an appropriate deal of objectivity that, you know, you weren't left thinking that, huh, maybe the guy did do it and the filmmakers just covered it up a little bit, but... No, I mean, really from episode two onwards, I think the whole issue of whether Kelly was guilty or not was kind of off the table almost, wasn't it? I think it was right. more a case of whether the wheels of justice would turn in, in the right direction. But um, yeah, pretty soon everyone, even the new district attorney was working to, to get him off, it seemed. But um, even without that sort of sense of, you know, suspense, I found 
the other four episodes as as compelling as the first one. I mean, how about yourself? Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting that the first episode left it all very much up in the air, what the hell happened. And, you know, there are one or two more moments along the way after that where they seem to go out of their way to create a little doubt in your mind just for the hell of it. Um, but for the most part, as you said, it becomes the story of a totally innocent guy, some cops and prosecutors whose only motivation was to get a conviction and Greg Kelly's fight for his freedom and exoneration. And the latter stages captured the drama of that really powerfully. Uh, I I definitely got choked up in the final episode. And wow, his his girlfriend, uh, now wife, uh, Gabri, what an amazing person to stand by him the way she did. Uh, There are a few heroes in this story, but but she is the biggest hero, I think, um, watching it. On the flip side, There are a lot of villains, um, and one is lingering with me, and it's someone who really isn't even part of the story. She was essentially just a talking head in the documentary. I'm talking about the the young woman who chimes in as a victim's advocate. Mm. Um, I can't even recall her name, but you know who I'm talking about. I know exactly who you mean. Um, Even as the evidence mounted that Greg Kelly didn't do it, she continued to insist he should be locked up because she believes victims. that's fine to a point, you know, start from a point of believing accusers, take all accusations seriously, but you have to keep an open mind and see what evidence emerges. You can't blindly believe victims. So she really stuck with me because Mm. she's obviously not a malicious person like the other villains in this are, but still she's very much part of the problem. And I presume there are a lot of people out there like her. So, so something about her really, lingered with me and, and resonated not in a good way with, with me yeah you know and it's interesting that sort of calls back to you know when we were looking at that first episode I, I had a, a genuine curiosity I did not know I brought up the issue of I tend to believe victims but when it's a four-year-old child and four-year-old right. childs have a very different concept of reality and I just didn't know I'm like does one normally put the same um, uh, um, balance of evidence or, or, or preponderance of evidence toward it. And then, of course, we went into that discussion in the show. Mm. One of the heroes for me, I thought was outstanding, was that expert in, in child testimony yes. who basically walked us through everything that they did wrong and how easy it is to sort of place a reality in a four-year-old's head and how angry I got at that cop just basically walking in on the interview mm-hmm. and clearly the, the poor kid was uncomfortable um, and, and sort of putting those ideas in, in, his, in his head. And was, something happened to that poor boy. And, and I like the fact that Greg Kelly was at, at, you know, his hearing when he was exonerated, made a point of saying, I'm so sorry to the family of this boy and to the boy. If something did happen to him, I'm so sorry that something has happened to him, you right. and you are not getting the, Satisfaction, for want of a better phrase, of having the the, the you know the perpetrator put away or whatever. Right. But I thought that was really that aspect of it was really interesting to me. And the other thing that really leapt out at me was, boy, what a difference it makes when you have 
a legitimate public servant in a public servant's position. The yes. the night and day between the two district attorneys was just unbelievable. And you get like a DA in there who's like, hey, we, we should, my job is to find justice. Right. <laughs> who actually seemed to be like pursuing justice to a greater degree than Kelly's original defense team did. Um, I thought that was fascinating. And I also thought it was a good reminder that the high famous quasi-famous high school football player can be wrongly convicted, go to jail for two years, then have another two years not knowing if he's ever going to be free. How often does this happen to people who have the wrong, not enough money or the wrong amount of pigmentation yeah. or, you know, I mean, it, I, I thought it was a real eye-opener uh, in, in the way the wheels of justice can turn and the way they all too often do. Yeah, no, it was, it was really fascinating and really well done. And so, of course, it's still uh, available on all the uh, on demand and Showtime anytime and, and those sort of ways of watching it that if anyone who's listening uh, didn't get a chance to see it, we unfortunately just spoiled, spoiled it for you a thing. bit, but still it's still compelling. it's still totally worth watching. So, yeah. yeah. OK, let's talk some boxing. Uh, Showtime Championship Boxing returned on Saturday from the Mohegan Sun in Uncasville, Connecticut, with a triple header that ended up differing from the one we previewed last week. <laughs> Uh, Stephen Coolboy Steph Fulton, who was scheduled to take on Angelo Leo in the 122-pound main event, tested positive for COVID-19. And this isn't an asymptomatic case, uh, although hopefully it remains mild and, and will pass. Uh, but Fulton told Brian Custer during Saturday night's broadcast that he had felt some symptoms beginning last Saturday, but that a cough hadn't been among them and he didn't think at all that he might have COVID, but apparently he did and does. So he dropped out, and in his absence, previously unbeaten Tremaine Williams stepped up from the co-main to face Leo, and after a good couple of rounds in which Williams showed his wannabe Pernell Whitaker <laughs> skills, speed, and movement, he became progressively overwhelmed by Leo's relentless assault, and in particular, his body punching Leo ended up winning a unanimous decision by scores of 117-111 and 118-110 twice to move to 20-0 with nine knockouts. Williams taste defeat for the first time, falling to 19-1 with six knockouts. Kieran, your thoughts on Leo's performance and how he simply brutalized Williams over the bulk of Saturday's contest. Yeah, look, I was super impressed with Leo. Um, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I think I probably underestimated him going into the into the weekend you know when considering him up against Fulton as well as considering him up against Williams um you know we talked about how you know although Leo is a you know a, a hard working very active pressure fighter that he isn't like that prototypical pressure fighter that he isn't just somebody who marches forward and puts his head on your chest but my goodness he was awfully close to being that on Saturday night <laughs> yep. um it was like once he gauged that distance and and he figured out the timing and 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 and, the, and his spots he was all over Williams. It, it looked like they were attached by, you know, one of those extendable dog leashes where you can like let it go out and then you press the button and it just reels the dog in. Uh, <laughs> that's what it looked like. It just kept reeling uh, uh, Williams in. And um, and as we talked about in the preview when we were considering him against uh, Fulton, his body punching was just fantastic. Um, I, I did actually think around round eight or so i started to think that maybe this could end up in a stoppage that maybe because williams corner a couple of times sounded a bit anxious didn't they mm -hmm. um about like he just can't keep taking these body punches but uh it's not that williams ever looked like he was in particular distress in terms of the punches landing although as we speak what do you want to wager that he's peeing blood right now <laughs> right. um right but you know he it was more that 
you know, even though I thought there was a chance he might will, it was mostly just as if he wasn't being given a chance to breathe. He, Leo just wasn't giving him the room to work. He wasn't giving him any space, any time to get off his punches. Um, he just... Leia wasn't giving Williams the opportunity to pivot or move, just to gain just that little bit of half distance he needed to be able to fire off uh, his left hands. Um, look, Williams had never been in a, with anybody of that quality and with that kind of smothering pressure, and it showed. And and I thought for Leia to adapt so swiftly, first of all, you know, to adapt to getting a being with a different opponent who was coming at him with a different stance, mm-hmm. and then to take those couple of rounds, clearly where Williams' hand speed looked as if it would do him well, um, you know, and, and his good positioning looked as if it would work for him. And then it was almost like after those two rounds, he was like, okay, I've got this sorted now. I'm off. Yep. Um, and even though, you know, he, he did come at him with angles, he did come at him from the sides, but once he was dialed in, he, he was just off to the races and there was no turning him back. I, I thought it was a very impressive performance actually from Angelo Leo. Yeah. You're absolutely right about how adaptable he because those first two rounds, Williams looked so good, c- couldn't miss with his counter left, used it as a, as a pull counter once or twice. Really, he, he just really looked legit. And Leo looked extremely uncomfortable against a southpaw. And it was the thing <laughs> that, that you were talking about, where he had a, you know, a late change of opponent from an orthodox fighter to a southpaw. And it looked like it was just going to be a huge problem. And it turned out that that was kind of all Williams had was a couple of good rounds in him, and he didn't have the experience and maturity to stick with it, to adjust as Leo made his adjustments and, and stepped up his jabs, stepped up his body punching, stepped up his pressure, and Williams's punch output kept dropping. And uh, you talked about the look like his corner was thinking of, about maybe uh, ending it early. By the last few rounds, it was certainly clear Williams wasn't trying to win anymore. Yeah. Um, I thought Al Bernstein nailed it afterwards. He said of Leo, this is a victory for his style. Uh, I, I thought that mm. really captured it. Um, you know, like the style versus substance cliche. Uh, mm. Leo's style is substance. Uh, you know, it's it's hard work, pressure, discipline, determination. That's what prevailed. Um, so, uh, yeah, really impressed with him. Uh, and, and, and by the way, uh, and, and we'll discuss this uh, more with, uh, with Breadman when he comes on, but I just want to say I'm that much more eager now to see Leo versus Fulton. Yeah. Um, hopefully that can be rescheduled for later this year, maybe as the the co-feature on one of the big cards coming up in October, November, something like that. But that fight got bigger with with yeah. Leo's dominant win here. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, and, and Fulton looked extraordinarily enthusiastic about it at the end. Apparently one of the <laughs> symptoms of getting COVID is being like really, really perky a week later. <laughs> For him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's having a party there. I don't know. <laughs> uh, in the co-main, uh, Raisa Salim, who had been scheduled to take on Williams, uh, faced Marcus Bates instead. Apparently Showtime had several fighters on standby for exactly this scenario, uh, knowing full well, not least having watched how things had gone with ESPN and top rank, the possibility of, of positive tests, you know, derailing everything. Um, Aleem had faced Bates before uh, in an April 2018 eight rounder when he was 10 and 0 and Bates was 8 0 and 1. Aleem won that first meeting comfortably, winning seven of eight rounds on all three judges' scorecards, and he won the rematch in a similarly convincing style winning nine of 10 rounds on all three cards before the fight was stopped at 2.18 of the 10th with Bates in clear pain after having injured his right wrist a couple of rounds earlier. It looked to me actually that the final sequence, I thought maybe Aleem landed a punch on directly on the yep. wrist. Yep, that's what, it was that's what I saw. Him, wasn't yeah. It? Yeah. Um, Aleem moves to 17-0, and 0, 
with 11 KOs, while Bates falls to 11, 2, and 1 with eight knockouts, both losses coming to Aleem. Uh, Eric, this was a relatively straightforward win in as much as any, you know, price fight is a straightforward win for anybody, for Aleem. What made him so effective? And based on what we saw both in the main and the co-main, do you stick with your original prediction that Tremaine Williams might have knocked out uh, Reese Aleem had they met? Um, so, you know, it's interesting how it unfolded somewhat like the main event uh, in that in this fight, I gave the first round to Bates. I, I thought he started well mm-hmm. and looked very quick and slick. And then it was all Aleem the rest of the way, who uh, I, I soon re- realized that he was just as quick as Bates and and unlike Bates was willing to lead. Bates was a mm-hmm. pure counterpuncher. Uh, Aleem showed a good jab, nice combinations, increasing body work. It, it was a somewhat Leo-like performance albeit against a lower caliber of opposition than what Angelo Leo beat. Uh, so how do I feel about my Williams over Aleem prediction? Not great. Um, <laughs> I, I think that similar to how Leo's style triumphed over Williams, although Aleem doesn't have Leo's credentials, I think his style is similar enough that he probably wears Williams down also and, and gets stronger as the fight goes on while Williams gets weaker, which is exactly how you pegged it last week. So uh, I, I might have dodged a bullet in our picks competition there. <laughs> um, but speaking of our picks competition with the main event and co-main uh, both changing from what had originally been planned, our official picks for both obviously went up in smoke. No ground was gained or lost on those. But we did share private picks on Saturday morning just for the hell of it. Uh, these won't count toward our official tallies, but we figured – We'd make the picks so we'd have them to discuss on the pod. And the picks were interesting. Yeah. Although Kieran picked Tremaine Williams to lose to Raisa Aleem, and I picked Williams to beat Aleem, our private picks for the reconfigured main event flipped completely. Kieran picked Williams to beat Angelo Leo on points, while I picked Leo to win a close unanimous decision. And in the co-main, we both picked Aleem to beat Marcus Bates, but on points. Uh, but we did both come pretty close to picking a stoppage. We talked about how we were both flirting with that. So, you know, we, we had the correct winner in the co-main. Uh, we would have done better if we'd had the courage of our convictions in, in picking the stoppage. Uh, but we, we each got one theoretical point uh, right. piece on that one, and I got three theoretical points for the main event to your theoretical zero. Uh, so <laughs> I've said it before, and I'll say it again. At the end of the year, if I'm ahead, huzzah for me. If you're ahead, asterisk. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so funny. Uh, yeah, so each of us had a uh, Tremaine Williams focused pick that we're walking away from. Uh, uh-huh. One official and one unofficial. Yeah, it's funny. It's like Leo Williams sort of unfolded the way in my head that I had predict that I thought for Aleem Williams, but times, you know, 100. I mean, he was just right. much, Leo was much more dominant than I thought Aleem would be against him. Uh, you know, I did think that Williams would start well against Aleem and then Aleem would start reeling him in. But, you know, for some reason, I just thought it would be far closer. Um, I, I just felt that with Leo, you know, I, I just think I've done Leo a disservice uh, somewhat um, in that I just felt he was a lot more straightforward than uh, Aleem was and, and that Williams would have the time to to sort of fire those punches down the middle. And for the first two rounds, I thought I was being pretty smart. But um, yeah, uh, I, I have a suspicion for the co-main, though, that we would have been right on the money with a decision victory absent that injury, although although it's hard to say because Aleem was utterly dominant. I, I right. do agree with the folks ringside that it might have been a smidgen disappointing for Aleem if he had not 
ultimately been able to turn that dominance into a stoppage. Right. Right. Uh, but uh, but but he did uh, he did get that whether whether by injury or by other methods. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, he gets the KO on his record. But uh, yeah, none of that counts uh, toward nope. our predictions contest. The one pick from last week's preview pod that remained official was for the opener. We both picked Marcos Escudero to outpoint Joe George, and we were both spectacularly wrong, <laughs> uh, although we were. 80% on of the way to being right. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Escudero led on two scorecards. And how George was ahead 79-73 on Tom Carasone's scorecard, I will never understand. Uh, unless there was a clerical error and he had the fighters reversed or that's something. Um, maybe that's what happened. If not, that might honestly be the worst scorecard I've seen in 23 years covering boxing. I, I can't fathom it. But... Uh, thankfully, it became the worst irrelevant scorecard I've seen in 23 years covering boxing when early in round nine, George unleashed a left uppercut from hell to score what I would say becomes the leader in the clubhouse for knockout of the year. Uh, Kieran, how did George, whose decision win over Escadero last time out was highly controversial, erase all doubt this time? It was funny. I thought that you know, up until that point, I felt it was like one of those rematch scenarios where the guy who officially won the first time was actually doing better the second time, even as he was headed for an official loss, right? Mm. If that makes any sense. Um, if Carousel didn't get his corners wrong, he clearly joins the list of judges we need to keep an eye on. Yes. Um, I, I thought either Steve Farhood's unofficial card or Steve Weisfeld's official one was sort of right on the money. Um, a couple of rounds there for, for George. But... Um, Again, his lack of activity was counting against him. Uh, again, you know, not all of Escudero's punches were landing cleanly. But then again, Escudero's output was somewhat diminished compared to the first fight. George was maybe not spending quite as much time on the ropes as last time. It was sort of a better performance by him, even though this time the correction seemed to be in. And he was probably on his way to a split decision win. Um... But, you know, George was still landing at the higher rate. But what was interesting to me is, like, in that first fight, he sort of began to turn it around a bit in the eighth, buzzed Escudero in the ninth, couldn't quite finish the job. Here, I felt like he came to life in the eighth and mm -hmm. then finished it in the ninth. Um, the impression I got, the note that I made, Joe George is a 15-round fighter in a 10-round era. <laughs> That's a good call. Yeah. Right? Um, he's gotten away with it so far. Um, but I don't know if, if at some point it might bite him in the ass. Um, but what I really loved about the KO was, you know, I don't know how much he said afterwards that he was he was setting him up for the whole thing. I don't know if that's true or not, but because it looked to me like he missed quite wildly with the right hand that caused Escudero to duck. It didn't look like a setup, but right. he did clearly, once he realized that he had an opportunity there, move swiftly to take advantage of it. Like Escudero ducked and moved forward. He had his head right there. And what I liked was the way that George kind of used like his right forearm to almost just keep it right there and take that little half step to the left to fire hit that left uppercut in there. Um, it was a beautiful punch, short, sharp, fast, um, and, and just saw that opening very swiftly and, and set it up and just landed it. And I, I kind of like the just standing there looking at the guy unconscious on the, on the <laughs> canvas before you walk to the neutral corner. I like that look. That yeah. was, uh, that works for me. Yeah. Take, <laughs> take a little mental picture after you've done something like that. Why not? Um, <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned him him starting to come on in the eighth. I gave George the eighth round, and that was the only yeah. one that I gave him. Um, but I, I had two other rounds noted as close. So I can see getting to Steve Weisfeld's 77-75 yeah. lead for Escadero, but 
that's it. I, I can't imagine how anyone could give some of those rounds to George when he was getting outworked so badly. And it's not like Escudero was outworking him with nothing pity pat punches. He was really sitting down right. on his punches and landing plenty of them. I'd wonder a bit if, in the end, his promoter putting added pressure on him to score right. a knockout played any kind of a role. I wonder if he was still thinking KO in round nine and got mm. nonchalant about defense in a way that he wouldn't have if he was thinking about boxing safely to the finish line after building a lead, or at least what we thought was a, a big lead. Um, but either way, good for George. That was one hell of a punch and uh, a reminder of why it's it's never over in boxing and, and why boxing is so unique in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, joining us now to give his thoughts on last Saturday's card and to look ahead to the next Showtime boxing broadcast on August 15th, as well as the rest of the announced Showtime schedule and various other bits of news, is a regular on the podcast. We are very happy to welcome back our friend Stephen Breadman Edwards. Stephen, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. How you guys doing? We're all right. So far, so good. Oh, we're making it. Hey, listen, man, look, when we last spoke to you, it was really the early days of the pandemic here in the U.S. And, um, you know, since then, the, outside of a few places, the situation has quite spectacularly failed to improve. So um, how are you doing before we talk about anything else? Are you back training boxers? How have your fighters been doing in terms of, you know, keeping themselves in shape? Um, to what extent is your life returning somewhat to normal? Um, I think it's maybe about 60% normal, mm. but you still got to be careful in the gyms, you know, training with the mask on and things like that is not easy. And, um, you know, it's about 60% normal, but hopefully things will kind of, um, iron itself out over the next few months. And, uh, they come up with some kind of cure or vaccines. It's pretty tough training with those masks on. Yeah, you, when we were talking to you, I know you you had given us this kind of sense of, you know, what you were telling your guys that they needed to be doing when they were by themselves in terms of staying in shape and ready to go. What's the report mm -hmm. card grade on everybody when they started showing up at the gym? Did everybody do their homework the way they were supposed to? Um, you know what? I still haven't even seen everybody. Okay. But um, you know, at this point, you can't uh micromanage everybody and babysit them. You know, mm -hmm. if they want to succeed, they have to do what they have to do. You know, uh, so that's just what it is at this point. All right. So your, your your gym is getting back up and running and uh, Showtime Boxing is now officially back up and running. So let, let's talk about Saturday night's card and the return of Showtime Boxing. We'll take the, the main and, and co-main somewhat together since they all featured promising 122 pounders. First of all, the main event, you're quite familiar with Stephen Fulton, a fellow Philly guy. How did you think things were going to unfold when it was set to be Fulton in there with Angelo Leo? And now having watched Leo beat up Tremaine Williams, any differences of opinion now about how you expect it to go when Fulton and Leo eventually meet? Ironically, um, Fulton trains in our gym. Okay. And uh, he had asked me to uh, work his corner for that fight. Hmm. Um, so uh, I was really confident in his chances of winning the fight. Uh, I think that... Uh, I still, I'm still confident in his, in his chances. I think Angelo Leo is a, a solid, well-rounded fighter, though. And, um, you know, we call Stephen Fulton Scooter. Scooter is not going to, um, you know, he has to be on his A-game to win because guys raise their, uh, just because a guy may not show up well on video when you're studying him, that doesn't mean that he can't get better. 
and, and do things that you haven't seen on video when he gets in the ring for you, with mm-hmm. you. So, um, um, I'm kind of glad that, uh, Leo looked good last night. So, um, you know, Scooter can really, really take him super serious and mm-hmm. be locked in when he fight. But, uh, I think that, um, I think that, uh, Stephen Fulton is going to, um, you know, he's going to be the champion once, when, whenever he gets his chance to fight for the title. Hmm. All right. So this this maybe fills in a few missing puzzle pieces in my mind of, of you talking about, you know, having to be really careful in in the gym and, uh, you know, only being 60 percent back to normal. If uh, if Stephen Fulton was in there, obviously that that raises the level of uh, of how careful and how cautious and how clean uh, you, you have to be. Uh, and all obviously with what what happened this week. So I, I didn't realize it had hit you uh, that directly for that fight to, to drop out. But uh, it sounds like that's something that once he's back and healthy you you guys uh he and and hopefully you in his corner want to make that match with with leo as soon as you can i think that they have to fight him mm. that leo has to fight him within uh, 90 days or 120 days i'm not sure i just remember somebody saying that or reading it somewhere so hopefully he'll get his title shot by the end of the year Okay. Uh, and so then in the co-main uh, on Saturday night, uh, Raiz Alim stopped Marcus Bates when Bates could no longer fight on with a right wrist injury. Uh, it's unfortunate for Bates, but it, it's also pretty clear that he just isn't on Alim's level. I'm curious for your take on, on what that level is. Can Alim hang with uh, the guys like Leo and, and, and Fulton, do you think? And also, uh, although he lost to Leo, what, what do you think of Tremaine Williams? Is he still a, a viable contender in this division? Um, I think he is. I think, uh, Williams probably just, uh, he was, he wasn't active. And I think that, uh, you know, he probably wasn't, you know, just because you can go 12 rounds, that doesn't mean you can go 12 rounds strong. Hmm. You know, you can tell he's sharp. You can tell he's talented, but Leo was in just dog shape. You know, hmm. he just was just kept touching him to the body, to the arms he just really just outworked him. He was just he just had too much stamina and endurance for him. And um mm. you know, uh Ray Salim is good. Yeah. I think he's a good fighter. You know, it's gonna be some interesting things going on at hundred and twenty two pounds. Yeah. A lot of young guys in their proms. And whenever you're facing young guys in their proms, you know, uh it's hard for one fighter to kind of be dominant and just run the table and just beat every single person. Right. You know, um so you'll have you may have a kind of a mix and match thing where one guy will beat one guy and then another, like, like for example, um, Leo just beat Williams and let me, and maybe Eileen will beat will beat Leo and then Faulkner will beat, uh, Eileen. You know what I mean? Sometimes right. you have like a round robin thing like that where, um, where everybody just takes turns beating each other because everybody's so evenly matched. Right. A lot of it will come down to who's having a good night that night. Yeah. So two of the three bouts on the card were rematches. Um, Aleem dominated Bates in much the way he had the first time they met, as we talked about. But in the opener, Marcus Escaduro was, was on his way to a decision win over Joe George, the way he should have been the first time out, probably, um, until George ended matters with a spectacular left uppercut uh, in the ninth. Uh, he said afterwards that he'd been setting Escaduro up for that all night. Did you see any evidence of that? Or from what you saw, do you feel like George took advantage of an opportunity once it was presented to him? Um, I don't believe in lucky punches in boxing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Escadero was 100% winning the fight. He was really outworking him. But George, 
was keeping his eye on the target. He knew that he couldn't match his work rate. And I think that he fought a smart fight. Sometimes when a guy is out working another guy, the coach will tell them to try to like pick up his work rate so he doesn't lose rounds. But sometimes that gets you caught. I think what George did was just conceded that I can't work with this guy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to catch him with a, a big shot. Mm. It's a risky plan, but if he would have opened up too much, I think what would happen was he would probably got beat even worse because when you open up, you're more susceptible to the incoming punches. Mm. So I think what he did was he, he was smart, you know, and I definitely don't think it was a lucky punch. Mm. So he, he meant to land that uppercut. You know, it, it, it happened a little late, but it's a 10 round fight. You have to be on your P's and Q's for the entire time. He, uh, that was a great shot. And uh, Escadero took his eye off of him. And you can't take your eye off the target. Yeah, yeah it's almost like you, by not uh, opening up too much, you help lull the other guy into a, a false sense of security, kind of yeah. sh- shades of Foreman and Moore, maybe a, a little bit, that he did so little the first nine rounds that, that Moore wasn't ready for it uh, when, when George let his punches go. It happens more often than, than people realize when you can't match a guy's work rate. You just try to line them up for a money shot. And it uh, it works because, you know, I mean, it's a risky plan. But, you know, George kept his eye on the target. You know, uh, he held his ground. And Escadero tried to hit him with a right hand. He caught it, came back with an uppercut. And that was all she wrote. And that was a beautiful knockout. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was. All right, so that that's this past Saturday's card. Uh, two weeks from now, Showtime Championship Boxing returns to the Mohegan Sun with a, a super middleweight main event featuring David Benavides against Romer Angulo. Super middleweight's one of the marquee divisions right now, especially with Canelo taking up at least part-time residence there. Uh, looking at the state of the division with guys like Callum Smith, Billy Joe Saunders, Caleb Plant, Daniel Jacobs there now. Where do you think Benavides fits in the division? And also, how, how much of a challenge does Angulo pose? I, I think um, Benavides is the real deal. I think he's a monster. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to say he's the best because they have to prove it in the ring. But I think that him and uh, Caleb Plant are, are heading towards a super fight in 2021. Hmm. Yeah, that's some fight that's going to be. Yeah. That happens. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm really high on Benavides. I think he's, a, he's an excellent fighter. Yeah, do you think that Angulo poses much of a danger to? I mean, bearing in mind that obviously, you know, you can never dismiss anybody going into a fight at this level. I was about to say that, man. You know, any championship fight, you got to respect your opponent. Um, I think he, you know, I think 75 25 in Benavidez's favor. Mm-hmm. You can't disrespect the guy with two, two hands. You know, he's going to come to fight. But I just think that uh, Benavidez is a class above. Um, it's going to be tough to beat Benavidez. You know, he has some weaknesses like any other fighter, but he has elite level hand speed, has a big time chin, has good punch selection, he's very strong, he's very mean, goes to the head and goes to the body. He's huge for the weight. Yeah, he's going to be tough to beat. Yeah. He's yeah. going to be really, really, really tough to beat. Yeah. Um, the co-main on that is pretty intriguing. Uh, two unbeaten guys again. Uh, Jackson Marinez of the Dominican Republic. He's 19 and 0 with seven KOs, and a really popular young Mayweather Promotions prospect, Rolando Romero, who's 11 and 0 with 10 KOs uh, in a lightweight contest. Have you seen much of Rolando Romero, and, and if so, what do, what do you think of his potential? Uh, I did see one of his fights, and I saw um, 
some kind of sparring footage of him. And um, I think he's a really hard puncher. You know, I can't really tell, you know, um, much else. I, want, I would like to see more of him. But I can tell that he's really, really strong. And uh, he looks like he can punch pretty good. But I haven't seen enough of him to give an overall assessment. Mm. Um, and we've got a pair of heavyweights opening up that telecast. Uh, Travis Kaufman facing off against Arthur Valin. You know, obviously you've had the... Uh, 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 the scare with uh, Stephen Fulton testing positive for COVID. Both these guys did. Um, and a while back, both these guys had it. And, and Kaufman's family had some real issues with it. Um, but they're they're back uh, and ready to fight each other. Uh, we saw Valine put up a brave performance against Tyson Fury, but he's had a lot of bad luck in getting fights to actually happen. Um, Kaufman hasn't had a fight since being stopped by Luis Ortiz in December 2018. Uh, on paper, Maybe not that much to look forward to, but it feels like kind of an intriguing heavyweight matchup. Uh, are you expecting much from this? Um, it's a good fight, you know. Um, I think it's pretty much an even fight. Um, that's that's going to be a good fight. I think it's going to be exciting because they both come to fight, and um, you know, me the best man win. I think it's a pretty good opener for them uh, for mm. the other cat. All right. Well, in- including. Uh, you know, the, this past Saturday's card and, and the one on August 15th that we just asked you a few questions about. Uh, Showtime actually announced a total of nine cards between now and December. A lot of big names feature on those cards, including uh, Jason Rosario, who we last saw scoring the upset win over your, your guy, uh, Julian J. Rock Williams. One name that wasn't on that Showtime schedule uh, was J. Rock's. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about what you have planned for him? Uh, are we going to see any announcement coming anytime soon? I really don't know at this point. Honestly, uh-huh. I don't even know. Oh, okay. Is 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 he one of the fighters who you when you were saying some of them haven't been in the gym? Uh, was that? Uh... Well, I haven't. I haven't been training them. Okay. All right. So you two at, at this point, you're not sure what the working relationship is going forward. Oh, I'm not saying that. You know, oh, I wouldn't okay. say that. Like right now, I just. I just haven't been training them. I've just been working with my other guy. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So, so there's obviously nothing around the corner there that you're aware of. Not that I'm aware of, no. Okay. Okay. I'm assuming, nonetheless, you're keeping an eye out um, on some of the other guys ar- around that division. Um, Showtime does have a couple of intriguing junior middleweight fights. There is that one with Rosario and Jamel Charlo. Uh, September 19th, there's a clash between Erickson Lubin and Terrell Gaucher. They look like really interesting and even matchups. What are, what are you expecting from either or both of those? I think those are great fights. Mm. I really do. I think um, in Gaucher and Lubin, you got like the older, more calm, well-rounded fighter. And Gaucher kind of has like the winky right way about him mm. where he doesn't try to do too much. And then Lubin is the younger, more dynamic, I think more gifted fighter. But, you know, Garcia is, um, you know, he's an Olympian for a reason. And, um, you know, he usually finds a way to win. And, uh, you know, Lubin is an uber talent. So I think that's an excellent fight. And uh, mm-hmm. Rosario and um, Charlo are, um, they're two violent fighters, strong guys. I think that's an excellent fight also. You know, that, that fight has fight of the year written all over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, it, it wouldn't be a, a making bread with Breadman segment if we didn't <laughs> talk some boxing betting. Um, and, and I am seeing odds at the sports books on the, the Charlo doubleheader. Um, I'm seeing that Jamal is a very small favorite over Derevyanchenko. Jamal is minus 138. Derevyanchenko is a small plus 110 underdog. Jermel, meanwhile, is, is a bigger favorite over Rosario. He's minus 400. Uh, Rosario is a plus 275 underdog. If you had to bet on one of those four fighters at those prices, which one uh, which one stands out to you? Which side of one of those fights appeals to you? Actually, I like both Charlos by knockout. Wow, okay. You know, so I will parlay that. I, I like them both by knockout. I, I was just going to say, I, 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 didn't look, I don't know that they have a, a breakdown of knockout versus decision available yet, although they probably will closer to the fight. But I did, just for out of curiosity, punch in a Charlo Brothers both to win parlay, and that's plus 116. So that, that sounds like a, a bet you'd be eyeing? 100%. I think, um, I think both fights will be tough. But the one thing about the Charlo Brothers is that people don't... Um, don't give them credit for it. They show world-class chins. You know, those guys got good chins. Just think about it. They take some big, big punches and they, they stand up, you know, and they, and they, and they, and they always show a lot of durability. And I think that both fights, you know, it'll be some ebb and flow, some back and forth. I don't think that either Charlo brother is like a superior boxer. Like they don't, shut guys out 12 rounds to zip. They don't, they don't fight like that, but their physicality and their durability kind of like, you know, it carries them through their, um, through their fights. And I think that over the course of time, they'll start wearing um, Rosario and Derenchenko out. Mm-hmm. And I think both of them will score late stoppages. Mm-hmm. That would be a statement, especially a late stoppage of Derevianchenko when we've seen how well he's done like against Jacobs and Golovkin. That would be a big statement for Jamal if he were able to do that. I think he will. Mm. I think um, I think he's a little taller, and I think he relies on his jab a little bit more mm. than um, Triple G at this point in his career. Right. And, and Danny Jacobs, I think he'll keep Derevianchenko off a little bit more and make him fight a little bit harder to get through. I think I like Darren Tanko. He's a good fighter, mm. but I think that by the time he gets there, because he's such a short middleweight, I think he's going to be a little tired and wore out because he's going to have to use a lot of energy to get to him. And I like uh, I like Charlo to stop him late. All right. Look, before we let you go, it looks as if I haven't got the official announcement, but both fighters say it's on November 21st. The return of Errol Spence against Philadelphia's own Danny Garcia on pay-per-view. I'm sure we'll talk about this more in the coming months, but Right now, what would be your initial thoughts about the chances of your fellow Philly guy Garcia in that matchup? That's a great fight. I'm happy for Danny. He gets, a, um, you know, if he wins the fight, he's in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's um, that's how big the fight is. You know that this will be he'll be beating the what the best welterweight in the world. He mm-hmm. needs this kind of victory to kind of solidify his legacy. And uh, I mean, it's not going to be easy. But uh, it's a great fight. It's a great opportunity for him. You know, Eric and I have talked about Danny before. You know, sometimes some fans give him grief for reasons that we can't figure out. His resume is incredibly impressive. Danny's fought just about everybody that there is to fight out there. Yeah, he has a good resume. You know, he's lost a couple of big fights at 47. So if he's able to beat Spence, it'll kind of like cement his resume. And uh, I think it'll put him in the Hall of Fame. You know, a lot of people don't like Danny, but um, he's a good fighter. He's an excellent fighter. 
yeah. and uh, Earl Spence looks like a great fighter. So we'll see. You know, um, I'm happy that Danny got the opportunity. All right. Hey, look, Stephen, thank you so much, as always, for for giving us your time. We always do appreciate it. And, and with Showtime Boxing up and running again, at least for now, we'll, I'm sure we'll speak to you again very soon. Sorry that the Stephen Fulton fight fell through for you. I assume, did you have to get tested as well if you were around Fulton and then he turned positive? Did you, did you have to go through all of that? Yeah. Yeah. I had to go through everything also. Yeah. I'm sure it did. Yeah. Is it as unpleasant as they say it is getting that test? Oh man! Oh, is it? Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, you have it. You're having. You're having nightmares of, with Q-tips in them. <laughs> yeah, man, it's tough, man. You know, this disease is real. People that think yep. it's a hoax, it is real. Yes, indeed. Yep. Yeah. Well, um, uh, hopefully, uh, Stephen gets, uh, Fulton gets well soon, and hopefully, we'll. Uh, We'll be able to see you back in the corner with him and other folks uh, sometime soon. And we'll have you back on the podcast real soon as well. Uh, Stephen, thanks so very much, man. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Have a good one. All right. Thanks very much again to Breadman for joining us. Uh, Just a few other items to address before we go. Uh, First up, the Showtime card on Saturday was not the only televised boxing from around the world this weekend. Uh, Very early on Saturday morning in the US, uh, Matchroom's YouTube channel streamed the return of former 118-pound champion Srisaket Sorong Visai, who fell behind early against Amnat Runrong before piling on the pressure down the stretch to win a unanimous decision. Uh, Later in the day, Matchroom began its Fight Camp series from the company's very impressive backyard. Yeah. And in the uh, headline bout, uh, junior middleweight Ted Cheeseman scored his first win in 22 months as he outpointed Sam Eggington in an all-action brawl. Uh, Eric, your thoughts on either or both of these? Well, I didn't watch the Saket fight, so I don't have many thoughts on that, except that it's not a great sign that he's struggling a bit with yeah. 40-year-old Ronrong. Uh, not sure if it's ring rust or if Saket is... One of those fighters who had a relatively brief prime and is now on the slide a bit uh, remains to be seen there. And I didn't watch the fight, so I can't really read too much into it. I did watch Cheeseman Eggington live and with great interest because I had money on it. Uh, As the lactose intolerant individual I am, I obviously went against Cheeseman. Uh, Actually, actually, it was as the value-hunting gambler that I am that I went against Cheeseman because I saw a good price on Eggington. To me, when I first heard about this fight, I figured it was 50-50-ish. Yeah, maybe Cheeseman's a slight favorite, but only slight. So when I saw Eggington as a plus 240 underdog, I pounced on it. Uh, not because I was confident he would win. Just I felt he had much more than the 29% chance of winning that those odds implied. The end result justified my bet, even if my bankroll does not reflect it. Um, very <laughs> close fight. Lots of close rounds. Really could have gone either way. I had Eggington up 115-113. I may have been uh, producing a bias score based on my wager, so there's that. From scrolling Twitter, it seemed people were making cases on both sides, but all three judges went with Cheeseman close. Either way, it was a, a very fun scrap, a highly competitive matchup. Now, Eddie Hearn tweeted that it was, quote, one of the best fights I have ever seen live, which is either promoter speak or it's a guy getting caught up in the moment because it wasn't that. Um, It was a solid B-plus club fight, a fun return for Matchroom, and uh, I I would think that hopefully it might lead to a rematch. I I think it's warranted. It was a good fight, very close, 
Uh, as long as Cheeseman isn't moving on to some better paying opportunity, I'd love to see uh, those two guys do it again. Okay, looking ahead to this coming week, Fox gets back in the live boxing broadcasting game on Saturday from the Microsoft Theater in Los Angeles with a card headlined by a welterweight contest between Jamal James and Thomas DeLorme, which had originally been scheduled for April 11th. Uh, During that broadcast, the network will announce its full slate of fights for the rest of the year, one of which, according to reports, will be Sean Porter against Sebastian Formella on August 22nd. Kieran, your level of excitement for either of these? Moderate. Okay. I think um, we've seen, I think, plenty enough evidence at this stage that Delaunay, while good, is not going to be perhaps what we'd hoped he might be earlier in his career. Okay. I, you know, Jamal James is somewhat interesting. He's a newish face, um, despite you know being, I think, 32 or something. I, I may enter a slight favorite here as a matchup. I think that's intriguing in that there's no clear favorites to me. Um, although there is also isn't that much at stake, notwithstanding the fact that we're going to have interim alphabet belt nonsense pushed down <laughs> our throats. Um, as for August 22nd, I don't see anything in, in Formella's record to suggest he'll be able to resist a Sean Porter freight train. Uh, nonetheless, it is always good, of course, to see Sean Porter in the ring. Yeah. Um, I am more excited about finding out what all else Fox has on tap and during that broadcast, uh, including uh, the fight that we talked about earlier briefly with Breadman. Uh, it seems certain to be announced during that broadcast, given that the boxes themselves have said it's on. Uh, the long-anticipated Errol Spence, Danny Garcia pay-per-view, which apparently is now slated for November 21st. Um, another much-anticipated bout, uh, the rematch between Juan Francisco Estrada and Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez is apparently still on track for October, uh, despite Estrada announcing that he had and is now recovering from COVID. Um, but according to The Athletic, at least, the tentatively scheduled October 3rd clash between Vasily Lomachenko and Teofimo Lopez is in some doubt as Lopez is reportedly bulking at the money available. Any thoughts on any or all of that? Uh, so starting with the the last fight you mentioned, I, I just heard an interview with Lopez recently where he was acting as if the fight was a done deal. So I'm not sure what went wrong there, but I hope they can work it out. That's probably a top three fight that can be made right now in all of boxing mm-hmm. for me. Um, Spence versus Garcia, uh, you know, Breadman weighed in a, a bit on that. And I feel like you and I, might have touched on it when it was rumored. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, we'll we'll have some time to process it and, and go in more depth. But for now, I'm glad it's happening, assuming that it is indeed happening. Very good matchup and a legit dangerous test for Spence to come right back with after yeah. all this time off and the car accident. Hopefully we can have Derek James on again before then to discuss. Oh, yeah, that would be great. He was a great guest. Yeah, yeah. So that that might be a good excuse to get him back on. As for Estrada Chocolatito, too, again, like these other fights uh, that we're discussing right here, bring it on. Uh, uh, these, these are all excellent fights. That's an excellent one. Uh, not to be a skunk at the party or a turd in the punch bowl, though. Or uh, a Vergara. Well, that would be the opposite of what, uh, of what uh, I, I know. I know what you're trying to do there, but uh, it's, it's a little off theme with the comment I'm going to make. Um, the, or I could just call myself a Debbie Downer here. Um, we kind of have to watch for how these fighters coming back from COVID perform. Um, yeah. We really don't know whether any of them might have lingering effects on their lung capacity. And and that's a big deal in boxing. Even a tiny reduction in stamina could make all the difference in a fight like Estrada versus Chocolatito. So uh, 
Sorry, sorry to be the the skunk or the turd on uh, by bringing that up, but uh, here's hoping we do see that fight, and that uh, when we do, we see Estrada at 100. percent Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, all right, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, join us next week, won't you? Uh, when we will have a full preview of the August 15th card, headlined by David Benavides against Roma Angulo. And I will be joined by my co-host, Sophia Vergara and Berry. Until then, thanks for listening, and be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs> <laughs>